0: Whether you are a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, uh, when you have children in your life, you want to pass on your wisdom to them. You want to share your experiences with them. And part of the reason why you want to do this is because you believe that it can actually help them. But the other part of the reason you want to do it is because sometimes, sometimes it costs you so much to learn that lesson the first time around that you're like, might as well be a buy one, get one free deal here. Like, if I had to pay for this, you should learn from what I had to pay. And so I have three daughters, and I want to pass my experiences on to them. But I was thinking the other day that there are some experiences I had growing up in the 80s uh, and in the 90s that they'll never have. And one of those examples is, or one of those experiences, having to get up from the couch to change the channel on the television. They'll never have that experience. Another one is having to wait for dial-up internet to connect. Remember that? I mean, you push the right buttons, and then it'd be like, you could just go make a sandwich, play a board game, and then by the time you got back, hopefully you're ready to log into your AOL account. Another experience that I remember very well as a teenager that my girls would never have is grabbing the telephone and trying to stretch the cord as far as I could so I could get some privacy behind a door. They'll, they'll never have that experience. And then the one experience that I know they'll never have, this is sort of more of a subtle one, that maybe you haven't even noticed we don't do this anymore. But for the most part, we don't give people directions anymore. We give them the address, right? If you want to get to my house, here's the address. And then I trust that you have something on your phone or something in your car, some sort of GPS that's going to get you there. But I don't actually give people directions anymore, anywhere. And most likely, neither do you. One of the things about people, when we used to give directions to each other, there are all sorts of different styles of direction giving. There were people that gave way too many details, like you're going to pass this street, then you're going to pass this street, then you're going to pass this street. I don't need to know the streets I'm going to pass. I just need to know the street I'm going to turn on. And then there's people who didn't give nearly enough instructions and details. But one of the things about people giving directions is that you can learn something about their priorities in life based on how they gave their directions, so for me, if you were to ask me how to get somewhere years ago, I would say this. Well, you go out, you turn left, you're going to see a McDonald's on your right. You're going to go past the McDonald's. When you get to the Arby's, you got to take a left. After the Arby's, you're going to see a Chipotle, and that's where you turn in. Now, if you see the Outback, you went too far. Like, that, that was my entire set of how I gave directions to people, and it revealed something about my priorities. <laughs> This morning, we're looking at a passage where Jesus is giving his disciples directions and instructions, and the way in which he does it reveals some really important things about his priorities. So let's look at this passage in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read to you verses 7 through 13, and then we'll skip down to verses 30, 31, and 32. I'm reading to you from the ESV translation, and it says this, and he called the twelve Jesus calling the 12 disciples to himself and began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag. Now, if you understand the original word here, this is a bag that a beggar would carry. This is a beggar's bag. This is not like a bag to carry important stuff in, but this is something different. No money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if, any place you, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, let's skip down to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, before I start to kind of unpack this text for us a little bit this morning, one of the things that we need to notice that's not one of my main points, but it's important for us to notice is that Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends them out. And we get a glimpse into the heart of the God that we serve, that he is a sending God. And to be a disciple means that you are a sent person. The reason I want to say that up front is because sometimes we feel like in our day, in our week, in our lives, where we are, we didn't really choose to be there. It's not the job we wanted. It's not the neighborhood we would have lived in if we we had more money to live somewhere else. It's not the people we would do life with, but this is kind of where we are. And I want to help you look at it differently. Wherever you are in life, wherever you work, wherever you live, Whoever you do life with, you've been sent there. You're not there on accident. God's not up there going, oh, I got this wrong, and now I don't have anything for them to do. You've been sent there. We serve a God who is a sending God, and so to be a disciple doesn't just mean that you're growing in maturity. It means you're going as a missionary. Sometimes we think discipleship is just about me getting smarter, knowing more, being more pious, being more religious, being more pure, and those are all parts of it, but the ultimate purpose of following Jesus is that he can send you back out. We're sent people. And Jesus sends them two by two. And when he sends them, he gives them in these texts four two-word commands that we're gonna look at this morning. Four two-word commands. And as we look at them, we're gonna understand more clearly Jesus' priorities and what it means to be a disciple. And what's at stake this morning in understanding what the Spirit is trying to say to our hearts? What it, what's at stake is much more than just, am I following Jesus the best way I can? What's really at stake here this morning is, am I following Jesus at all? Am I a disciple? So let's look at these, two, or these four two-word commands. And the first one is Jesus says, take nothing. In verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, just wear sandals, don't put on two tunics, take nothing. And the first thing we learn here from this command is that a disciple is learning to let go. A disciple is learning to let go. That's a, in your notes, you can fill that in if you're a note taker. A disciple is learning to let go. In my previous job, which just actually finished this past week, I traveled quite a bit. About once a month, I'd get onto a plane and fly somewhere, and I learned the art of traveling light. Like, I don't don't check a bag ever. I don't care where I'm going, how long I'm going there. I figured out you don't check bags, because first off, you don't always know if it's gonna get there but also slows you down in your travel. So like even tomorrow morning, I'll get on a plane. I'm flying out West to speak at a leadership conference and I need to wear a suit in one of the sessions. Now you may be, how do you you put a suit in your carry-on? Well, YouTube it. I mean, that's what I did. And if you YouTube it, there is a way to fold up a jacket like this and roll it up super tight and put it in your carry-on. And then when you pop it out in the hotel room, it's not wrinkled. I learned how to do it. Because I've learned to travel light. Now, when I travel with my wife and my three daughters, It's off the table, right? There's no such thing as traveling light. But Jesus is basically saying to his disciples here, hey, pack light, take nothing extra. Why is this such an important instruction? Why does Jesus say to his disciples, take nothing extra? And one of the commentaries I read said this, that things like bread and a bag and money in their belts and extra clothes, they all represent, don't miss this, they all represent things that bring security into our life. They all represent things that secure life. And the reason that Jesus says to them, take nothing, was so that they would learn to be daily dependent upon Christ and Christ alone for strength and provision. In other words, they, and I would suggest us this morning, need to learn to let go of things that we've grown used to holding on to. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going to learn to let go. Now, what are some of the things that we don't let go of? I thought of two categories. The first category is this. We don't let go of, or we tend to hold on to things that actually, they slow us down. We hold on to things that slow us down. Uh, Things like our past. Things like mistakes that we've made. Our hang-ups, our habits, our hurts. And they actually become our identity. And we carry them with us. In fact, in our vocabulary, uh, in the vocabulary that our society uses, we actually label them baggage, right? We talk about people's baggage, their emotional baggage, their relational baggage, and we tend to hold on to these things and carry these things with us. But the problem is, is that when you hold on to those things, they will always slow you down. They always will slow you down. The author of Hebrews, which is a letter that's written later in the New Testament, it's a beautiful sermon actually, says this in chapter 12 verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. So, the writer of Hebrews isn't just saying, hey, stop sinning and throw off sin. He's, he or she has actually created two categories of things that we need to let go of. Yes, we need to let go of our sin, but there's some things that aren't sin, but they're slowing us down and they're entangling us and we need to let go of them, like our past, like our mistakes, like our hurts. We need to let go of those things. Recently, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor out in Minnesota named John Piper, and he was talking about how lots of times Christians, when it comes to certain activities in their lives, the question they ask is, is it sin? Is it wrong? Should I do it or shouldn't I do it? You, can you relate to that? Sometimes that's, a, that's what we're wrestling with. And John Piper says, it's the wrong question. If you're a disciple, the question, is it sin? Is it wrong? Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? It's the wrong question. Here's the, here's the right question. Does it help me run? Does it help me run? And if it, does that relationship help me run? Does that habit help me run? Does that attitude or that approach to life, does it help me run and be a sent person who can both follow Jesus and be sent out from Jesus? See, we hold on to these things that slow us down. But the other category of things that we hold on to is we tend to hold on to things that make us feel good. We hold on to things that bring us comfort, right? Who doesn't like a little comfort? You know, if you have children in your home, you know that very often they'll have a favorite little toy, It kind of changes, right? For like a few weeks, they have this favorite little doll, and then it changes to a different thing. But whatever it is, they have to have it with them all the time, Uh, especially at sleep time. And so we'll be laying Madeline down for sleep, and she'll be like, Where's baby Moana? Where's baby Moana? And so we'll be like, Code Red, where's baby Moana? Because she is not going to sleep. She's not going to stop asking. She's not going to stop crying until somebody finds this cursed little doll, baby Moana. And it can't be anything else. Uh, Here's baby Cinderella. No, I want baby Moana. Here's grown-up Moana. No, I want baby Moana. Like, really, really specific. And so the whole house goes into, you know, uh, hunting and searching mode. And we start running all over looking for a little baby Moana. And then we find baby Moana, we approach her like, like a, maybe like a pantheistic pagan would approach like a stone god, like holding it out, like hoping that she will accept our offering. She needs that comfort just to rest. And we kind of laugh at that because we're not like that anymore. We don't need little dolls and little blankies, hopefully, um, to, to get, th- but, but we all do like being comfortable. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, it's one of my biggest heart idols is comfort. I love being comfortable. When I get home from a day of work, like within within 90 seconds, I'm in sweatpants and a t-shirt and sitting on the couch and saying, "Where's dinner?" No, I don't do that part, but <laughs> but you know, relaxing because I love I love comfort. I love being comfortable. This is not my deal. My deal is comfort, and I love comfort. But the problem is, is that comfort can actually become my deepest source of joy. My, my vision of the good life is a life in which I'm always comfortable, and everybody is always concerned about my comfort, and everyone lives to make sure that I'm comfortable. And when I do that, then here's the danger. I'll never lay my comfort down for you or for anything, because that's really become a source of joy and meaning in my life. Now, There are certain things in your life and in my life, and these are not bad things, so you don't have to think about what are the bad things. These are usually good things that bring us comfort or give us courage or instill confidence in us, and the problem is we become overly dependent upon them. Some of you are still telling stories about something you did successful years ago because that's where you get your confidence from. Some of you uh, will not go out and interact with people who don't look like you, act like you, think like you, vote like you because... You have comfort in being around people who affirm all of your beliefs and don't challenge anything that you think. And it's gonna prevent us from doing what disciples are called to do. So we need to be willing to let go. I don't know who said this quote. I don't know who to attribute it to because I've heard it so many places. But I've heard it said that Jesus Christ came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. To comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable. And if there is an adjective that describes most of the evangelical church in America today, it's probably comfortable. We're pretty comfortable. And following Jesus is not comfortable. It just isn't. Because when we follow him, we take nothing. And we trust in him. The second command in this text is, Jesus says, stay there. In verse 10, he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And what we learn here is that a disciple is learning to be content. The disciple is learning to be content. When I first read this verse, I was like, what's Jesus going on about? Like, wouldn't it actually make more sense from an evangelism standpoint to go to all different homes and stay in all sorts of different people's homes and spread the gospel everywhere? Why did Jesus say stay there? And as as I studied it, this is what I learned. Jesus said this to prevent them from trying to move up the ladder, so to speak, to nicer homes, or to better provisions, or into the homes of more influential people. He basically was saying, wherever you start, just stay there. Be content. Don't be overly ambitious. Don't have the values of this kingdom at work, or the, of the world's kingdom, at work in your heart, which has climb the ladder, step on people to get the top, to the top, do whatever you have to do to succeed. We have to learn to be content in any circumstance. Paul writes about this in his letter to the church at Philippi. And Philippians 4.13 is maybe, maybe the most misused verse in all the scriptures. Philippians 4.13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And football players put it on themselves and we, wear it, we put it on bumper stickers and we wear it on t-shirts and we post it on Twitter. And we're like, yeah, I can do anything. I'm unstoppable. I'm invincible. I'm mighty. I'm powerful. But when you read the context of Philippians chapter four, first off, Paul's sitting in jail. He's sitting in a Roman prison. He's about to be executed. And we read the context. You don't have to turn there, but here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, hold on. He's sitting in a Roman prison and he can write these words. I have learned. He's looking around his surroundings and he writes these words. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, through him who gives me strength. So what does that mean? Well, it means one thing for sure. Being content is hard. Being content is really hard. It's harder than we think. And it's so hard that we need Christ's strength to do it. You'll never be content without Christ's strength. Now, there are two great enemies of contentment. And the first one is this. Comparison. Always looking around, what everybody else has. And the second threat is consumerism. The need to the need to consume, the need to have more, the need to have the newest. We're never gonna be content when we need more and when we want what other people have. And the truth is, is that in our world today, technology and social media have actually made this worse because now we have unprecedented access to options. So as consumers, we have so many options. This is past week, I had to get a new phone because I left the other job and they kept my phone. And so I needed a new phone. And so I went out and bought a phone. But as soon as you buy a phone, what else do you need? A phone cover. Right? And so uh, I go on Amazon and I just type in iPhone 8 phone cover. You know, a million options. And here I am for like the next 45 minutes scrolling through, reading reviews, you know, zooming in to see as closely as I can what I'm getting. Cause I've gotten good ones and bad ones before, so it matters. And finally, like, uh, I just picked one. I was like, oh, just, I'm just going to get it. And so I get it and it comes. I actually really like it. But as soon as I got it, I'm, I'm walking around and showing people my new cover and then they're showing me theirs. And I'm like, oh, I kind of like, like that. <laughs> I kind of like that feature. I kind of like that it does that. And we live in this world where it's like, whatever you want to buy, there's a hundred options to buy. And so we're always, we have so much access to options, it's so hard to be content, both in our process of making decisions, but also in the decisions that we make. The other problem with social media specifically is that it's given us unlimited access to each other's lives, but not each other's real lives, right? The highlight reels of each other's lives. And so you, you can do this as a pastor, by the way, I'll walk home. Or I won't walk home because I'm lazy. But and it's far and it's cold. But I'll drive home and I'll go home and I'll, I'll log on and I'll be this afternoon. I'll be scrolling through my Instagram feed or my Twitter feed and I have pastor friends from all over the country and I'll see like you know their posts about what they did today and their post of different things and, and it's really easy to go oh man that looks pretty sweet and what happens is it's very subtle in our hearts but all of a sudden we're not content we're not we're, we're we would say we're grateful. Yeah, thank you, God, for what I have. But what I really want is this. And it drives and controls our lives. And if we're honest, this sort of consumeristic mentality has actually seeped into the way we approach God. What can you do for me? The way we approach each other. What do you have for me in this room? How can you serve my needs? The way we approach church. People choose churches like they choose phone covers. You know, we're consumers. And then people are content in a church until what they were consuming changes or what they were consuming isn't the exact same. So people say things like this. Not in this church, of course, but in other churches. Churches down the street, they say things like this. I am content in a church until the music isn't my style anymore. Then I'm not content. I'm content in a church until the preaching is too long. No amens. Good. Or the preaching is too short. No chance of that here. Uh, I'm content in a church until they recognize and platform my gifts the way that they should. I'm content in a church until someone hurts my feelings. See, this is the consumer mentality. And one of our value statements here at our church, in in April and May, we're gonna preach through our seven values, you're gonna learn all about them. But one of our value statements is this. As a church, we embrace God's purpose over our preferences. And we gotta be all in on that or it doesn't work. We embrace his purpose over our preferences, which means as the church, we exist for the mission of God. The church does not exist for me. The church does not exist for you. You are the church and you exist for the world. That's the way this works. We exist for the mission of God. We are to be spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. And so if you're asking yourself this morning, well, am I a disciple? Here's one question you should ask yourself. How much do I need my preferences still to be catered to? Because to the extent that you need your preferences still catered to, there's still a lot of work to happen in you when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. How quickly do you embrace, how quickly do I embrace his purpose over my personal preferences? Now, until we see Jesus... Humbling himself to serve us. Humbling himself, God becoming man, man becoming a servant, a servant who died a death, a death of a criminal upon the cross. Until we see it, not just with our eyes, but until we have a sense of it upon our hearts, this is what we'll do. We will manipulate every situation and we'll leverage every opportunity to be served and not to serve. Until we see that in Christ we lack for no good thing, including what you heard Jeannie say this morning, that we get to trade in our filthy rags, for his righteousness, until we see that in Christ we are righteous and we lack for no good thing, we'll never be content and we'll never be able to stay there. The third thing that Jesus says here after take nothing and stay there is he says, shake off. Shake off. Taylor Swift was original, but she stole her song from Jesus here, Shake It Off. He says, shake off. And here we learn that a disciple is learning to do hard things. This one's probably the most confusing of the four, so I'll explain this, but a disciple is learning to do hard things. Jesus says, if you go into a town and nobody listens to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what in the world is that about? We don't do that anymore. Well, let me help you understand this. One of the commentaries said this. It was customary in this time for Jewish people, especially pious Jewish people who had traveled abroad to carefully shake the dust of alien lands, that's foreigners, not E.T., alien lands from their feet and clothing. This act disassociated them from the pollution of those pagan lands and the judgment that was gonna come upon them. And the same action done here by the apostles symbolically declared declared that the hostile village was a pagan village. Now, this is where some people in the church were like, yeah, this gets me pumped. Like, this, finally, the whole take nothing thing, ah, not interested. Content, gross. But this, like, I get to tell people they're sinners? And I get, to, I get to give people a piece of my mind on the way out the door. I can't wait to start shaking people's dust off me. I'm going to start shaking people's dust off me left and right. And they, this is, some people will actually say, this is why I love being a Christian. This is why I love it. This is why I'm in. So I can tell the people who aren't in that they're wicked sinners. The problem is that it's not what this means. And the commentary goes on to say that this was a merciful, prophetic act designed to make people think one last time about their spiritual condition. So what this wasn't, despite the fact that the disciples were experiencing real rejection, what this was not, this was not the emotional response of someone who had their feelings hurt. This was not the emotional or the superior attitude of somebody who felt they were better than the people who just rejected. Disciples learned to do hard things. Disciples learned to do hard work. And one of the hardest things that you and I will do as disciples is continuing to love people who reject us and reject the message of the gospel, and not just love them, but serve them and draw near them and do life with them. That can be hard work. Some of you have people in your family, people that you work with, people people that you see every day, and just being around them sometimes is hard work for you because of the attitudes that they have, because of how they feel about Jesus and how they feel about your faith. But disciples learn to do the hard work of saying, "I, I have such mercy towards you that in everything that I do, even if it's the last thing I do towards you before I leave it's going to be so that you can see jesus and so that you can have hope it means loving loving people means not taking it personally when they don't believe what we believe and guarding our hearts even when we feel like we're being persecuted for what we believe one of the other commentaries let me read one more thing he said this later sources note that the jews who returned from gentile regions were to shake off the dust that was on their feet as a form of cleansing and it has served as a sign against them but there is no human militancy in the proclamation of Jesus' message. God is the only judge, amen? God is the sole judge. The act of shaking off the dust is an illustration of the fact that their rejection of God's message leaves the town accountable to God. So here's what the disciples are saying as they were to shake off the dust. They are saying, I will not carry in me an offense towards you, and I will not carry in me a need to judge you because there's only one judge, and it's not me. So part of doing hard things as a disciple is to say, when it comes to people who who don't know Jesus, I will do my part of loving you in word and in deed while I trust that the Holy Spirit will do his part, which is convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's not our part. You know that, right? That's not your responsibility to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment judgment, Your responsibility is to love people, to serve people, to speak the truth and love to people, to keep relationships alive so that when they finally, God's spirit begins to move their heart, they know that they can come to you with a conversation. Disciples learn to do hard things. Here's, just real quick, and we'll go to our last point. Here's some things that are hard for us to do as disciples. Anybody learn that sometimes praying is hard? Sometimes praying is hard. Sometimes just, you know, just We get busy. I mean, I've only been full-time here as far as like in the church for just over a month. I know what it's like to walk in those doors, go to that office and have a list of things I want to do that day. It's very easy for me just to kind of say, "Ah, I'll I'll just get some stuff done first and then maybe I'll pray. And then the day comes and goes and I've never prayed. Now, prayer is not just something you stop to do. Prayer is actually an attitude of the heart all day long. We should never stop praying, so to speak. Don't cease from praying. But it's also something that we do stop and do. And we do need to pray. But praying is hard. Sometimes uh, uh, taking time to meditate upon scripture is hard. We just want to read through it real quickly. But to actually let it wash over us and change us. These things don't happen easily, do they? And they don't happen on accident. They take effort. Sometimes being ethical in your workplace when other people are cheating and passing you by to promotions. That's hard. Sometimes trusting trusting God with your children. That's hard work, isn't it? Disciples learn to do hard things. Sometimes giving away money that could line your pockets and bring you more comfort and convenience, it's hard. Being a sent people can be hard, but disciples learn to do hard things. Last point this morning Jesus said, Take nothing. Jesus says, Stay there. Uh, Jesus says, Shake off. And then lastly, when we get down to verse 30, Jesus says, Come away. Come away. Other translations say, Come apart. One of my friends always says to me, If you don't learn, you'll fall apart you come apart to Jesus or you will fall apart and here's the last point if you're taking notes a disciple is learning to be with Jesus a disciple is learning to be with Jesus see the disciples are out doing their thing and crushing it man people were getting saved people were getting healed devils were getting cast out I mean it was a good trip it worked out super well but when they came back the first thing Jesus says to them in this gospel is come away come apart." Now, we don't want to come away and rest. We actually, many of us prefer to be busy. We like full lives. I mean, we complain about our full lives, but who created your full life? I mean, let's be honest. We complain about it, but we're the people who have made our lives so full. I was was reading an article about busyness and there's this quote from the Red Queen in the Alice in Wonderland book, and, and I loved it. The Red Queen says this, now here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Does that sound like your life ever? It takes all your running just to stay in the same place. If you want to get anywhere, you got to run twice as fast as that. And we're so busy. Now, why are we so busy? I think sometimes we're so busy because we're just trying to keep up. We look around at everybody else, what other people have, what other people's kids have, what their lives look like, so we make ourselves busy so that we can just keep up. Sometimes I think we're busy because it makes us feel important. We, I'm guilty of this. People are, how you doing, man? How things been? Oh, I've been busy, super busy. What I'm saying is I'm really important. A lot of people are really dependent on me. There's a lot of things I got to do. We like being busy because it makes us feel important. But the, I think the most serious, most sobering reason we like being busy is because it prevents us from being alone with ourselves. It prevents us from facing reality. As long as I'm busy, I don't have to think about who I am and where I am in life and what my heart, where my heart is at. A pastor named Doug Fields one time said this, and it's, never, it's always stuck with me. A busy life is no cure for a dry soul. A busy life is no cure for a dry soul. But we act like it is. We take all our busyness, and we try to apply it like salve to our dry souls, and it doesn't work. There's a well-known author and pastor out in California, a Presbyterian pastor named John Ortberg. I read an article by him the other day, and when he was a young minister he went to the most seasoned, wise, veteran pastor he knew. And he asked him this question, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? He got out his notepad and his pen. And he got ready to write all this stuff down that he was going to do. And the pastor said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he said, got it. What next? What next? He said, no, nothing next. That's it. Hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Busyness is not of the devil. Busy is the devil. Now, I realize we have responsibilities and things that we're called to do, and God's given us a work, and we bear his image well by doing that work. So business is not actually just your schedule. Business is the condition of your heart, right? Some people have very unbusy schedules, but their hearts are very busy. And some people have very busy schedules, but their hearts are at rest. So this isn't simply like I need to stop doing things and stop working and stop providing for my family. God forbid, that's not what I'm saying. Can your heart rest? Can you come away and be with Jesus? All of our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus, right? It's in being with him that we become like him. Now let me close with this final thought. Where do disciples of Jesus find the motivation and where do we find the strength to let go, to be content, to do hard things, and to be with Jesus. Where do we find that? In Luke, Luke tells the same story. It, maybe it's a different account. We're not 100% sure, because in Luke's account, Jesus sends out 72. So there may have been two different stories, but they're actually very similar. Because in Luke, when he sends out the 72, he sends them out two by two, and he gives them almost the identical instructions. So this is basically the same situation, the same deal, or a similar deal. And the disciples go out and they do their whole deal and they have great success just like they do in this story in Mark 6. And they come back and they're super pumped and they're jumping up and down and they're high-fiving each other and they're tweeting about what they did. And in Luke ten twenty, Jesus says this to them. Hey, guys, hey, guys, ladies, don't rejoice in any of that. Don't find your deepest joy in what you've done. Don't even rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written. In heaven. Where do we find the motivation and the strength? We don't find it from our own doing and from our own accomplishments and our own performance and our own strength. We find it in having a deep assurance that our names are written in the only place that actually matters, the Lamb's book of life. Our names are written in heaven. And so this is what it means for us this morning as we finish. Your deepest joy, your deepest source of joy should not be in your work on God's behalf but in God's work on your behalf. Not in your work on God's behalf. Here's all the things I've done for you, God. But rather, as we come to the communion table in just a moment, Jesus, what have you done for me? Look at your work on my behalf. It's the only work that matters. And it's the only work that makes our work matter. And so we come before him as disciples saying, God, give me the strength to let go. Give me the strength to be content. Give me the strength do hard things. Give me the strength to be with you, the desire to be with you, and let it all flow out of a heart that is forever grateful for Jesus' work on our behalf. Let's pray together this morning.